Hi, friends. That's what Scott Henselman says whenever he starts a talk or podcast. He's done over 650 episodes of his Hanselman's podcast that he calls Fresh Air for Developers. It's a tight 30-minute technology chat show that shares the same values that we do here at Greater Than Code. There's a huge library of guests for you to catch up on, and new high-quality show every Thursday afternoon with a fresh face that you may not have heard on other shows. Welcome to episode 115 of Greater Than Code. I'm your host, one of your hosts, Jamie Hampton, and I'm here with my friend, Jackie Sowers. Thank you, Jamie. And um, I'm here to introduce our guest for today, uh, Sam Joseph. Sam is a co-founder of Agile Ventures, a charity that helps groups of volunteers gather online to develop open source solutions for other charities all around the world. Sam has been mucking about with computers since the early 80s and followed the traditional education system through to a PhD in neural nets. Next, he went to all industry, researching mobile agents at Toshiba in Japan, going freelance, and then swung back into academia for research in peer-to-peer and collaborative systems. He now spends the majority of his time trying to make Agile Ventures a sustainable charity enterprise, with occasional moonlighting as a contract programmer. Welcome to the show, Sam. Oh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. So as you know, we'd like to kick off the show by asking our guests all the same question, which is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? That's such a great question. Yes, I've been thinking about that all week, and I've settled on if it is it a superpower or a super curse that it's persistence, and it kind of comes from I guess I find if I fit something into my routine, then I'll keep repeatedly doing it. So I wrote a blog every day for two years, finishing recently, and I don't know that anybody was necessarily reading them, but once I'd got into the cycle of doing them, I just carried on doing it similarly sometimes with, with coding problems you know i just will keep hacking away at it until i i get there similarly with trying to set up a charity or other strange things i just get into this mode of like right i'll keep doing it long past the point when other sensible sane people would have kind of given up on those things and said well no one's really you know listening or nobody's paying attention and so yes it's a great thing to have because i i hear about people saying like you know they have problems with willpower they can't stick at things if I've inserted things into my routine or into my objectives, I'm like, right, I'm going to do it. But then I kind of sometimes run myself into the ground trying to do it, if that makes any sense. That does yeah, make I, sense. Yeah. I was going to ask how it's a curse because I'm like, I think it's cool to do things past the point that reasonable people would do them. <laughs> but I can see that the burnout issue too, I think. The particular problem that I've had with it over my, my life is just I, I'm not very good with people. You know, actually, with the computer, sometimes it really is a wonderful superpower because the computer doesn't really care most of the time. Like, if you're being persistent and, and obtuse and, and sort of sticking at something, and, and maybe actually it's come almost. You know, I was going to say, oh, this is something I'm just like grown up as a personality, but I do remember, particularly when actually doing the the PhD, which involved a lot of programming. There would be like weeks where I had been just doing almost nothing for programming, and then I would come out of the the, the lab, and then I'd be trying to interact with people, and I'd be trying to like pr- not almost program them, but like. I was kind of like expecting an interface where I could just sort of say a thing and it would get an expected response. Do you know what I mean? And that actually the kind of the way that the computer was teaching me to behave was actually very different from the way that is usually the way that you could effectively interact with people. Uh, and so that's what I think has got to mean the most trouble is by being too persistent, pressing too hard on people to get us going in a particular direction, the team to do this or that or what have you. So, yeah. 
Where do you think the line is between, like, sometimes people need a push versus I'm being too persistent to someone? It's so hard because there are so many different kinds of people. And even, you know, the same person on different days or in different contexts, you know, it it depends so much on your relationship with that person and about whether you can be the kind of friend who can give a push there or if then the, the, you know almost the same uh the, the same request or the same thing would be on a different day even with the same person they might be just not ready for that push and then i mean this is i guess the skill of of, of great human beings is they've kind of got that sense you know that the person that they're interacting with would be receptive to that push or not and in the past i just had no idea that that was even the case and now at least i'm like okay so there is this complex problem and i'm not necessarily very good at it and that's half the battle you just gave me a really intense appreciation for like how complex even like my most basic interactions with people kind of are like even interactions that i do without thinking about it like really involves a lot of that oh that's so interesting yeah, to think about how much like background processing you're doing and, and feedback looping there is even in a single conversation, and it, and it's going on whether you're aware of it or not, right? <laughs> that, that's right, and, and I guess there's you know I've got I've got you know three children who are like thirteen and ten and ten, and I've been watching them go through the different stages of their different you know the way that they interact with their peers and each other and 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 so on, and and I guess we, we we're all going through this process of you know skill, skill building, which is whether that's learning to walk or, you know, uh, learn to pick things up and then, you know, communicate with people. We start to kind of, some things, I'm running a bicycle, you start to, I can't even remember the word now, it's like auto- automatize or it becomes like you don't have to think about it quite so hard because you've done it a few times and then you build on that. And then it's the same with, you know, I, I've ended up living in, in Japan and, and trying to become fluent in Japanese and sort of you're restarting over with the kind of, Okay, I just want to like make these simple requests for things and then building up to, okay, okay, so like I could make some requests. Now, how is the person who I'm talking to who's from a different cultural background feeling about how I'm making this request and the tone that I'm making the request in and the expression that I have on my face when it's happening? And, um, there is so much going on. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing that we're just not all kind of like tied up in little balls. Uh, well, I, I guess you just, uh, you know, you, you have to at some point say, well, you know, I don't know what the right thing is to do and, and, and do something and then, you know, sometimes it mucks up and then you rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Yeah, I mean, I think that's actually an interesting point because, like, if, if you try and have a perfect conversation, you will pretty much always fail. Um, <laughs> and if you continuously beat yourself up over about uh, doing these things poorly, then you probably will spend all your energy hating yourself and not getting any better at it. Absolutely. And then so it becomes kind of key, I guess, for, for getting things done is, is I mean, I hear a lot. I'm a you know huge fan of the show. I've been listening since episode one. The you know we talk about the, the sort of the safe spaces where you it's safe for yourself, safe for the others. That you kind of create an environment where you can make mistakes and you know repair on that, and that that's an acceptable thing for everybody to do. And and then there's step back to like okay, how do you create the safe environment in the first place? Well, that's a, another level of tricky, but I, th- I think I think we'd all agree, right, that it's sort of creating that space of safety is the prerequisite for real learning to take place. Yeah, it's definitely important. That was one of those insights that came out of Google's Project Oxygen, where they were looking at what makes good teams and what makes teams function well. And it has nothing to do with the technology. It's all about psychological safety and how the teams interact with each other and you know, the ability to take risks and fail and 
you use that for learning and and do that like and it's pretty much exactly the same with what we were just talking about doing that incremental improvement where some of the times you're going to really botch it but you might learn a lot from that the second part of the super rare question is kind of like how did you acquire it like do you think you're just the kind of person that's like that or did you like learn to be persistent in some way like i'm very bad at adding new things to my routine so i would be interested in this yeah, that's an interesting. I think there was a kind of intensity, sort of from birth. Although my my mother tells this story, so that I was the first child, and she had been doing stuff all child development. She was sort of a social worker, and she was sort of into that space. And she believed very strongly in stim. You know, like like right. You know, we've got to you got to stimulate the child to develop their you know um, intellect and their intelligence and and these sorts of things and so what she tells me was that she was always kind of you know sort of trying to stimulate me with toys and shapes and sounds and and, and things and so so, so I, I want kind of a level of constant stimulation I want to be doing things you know I think she also you know, apparently I responded well you know during toilet training to like have like stickers and like charts and and these things and I think there's sort of a routine sort of thing sorry <laughs> a bit <laughs> A bit too deep there, maybe, but I think that you know there's an interaction there, the nature and nurture between the way perhaps my my parents were and the, my personality responded to that well, so they re- like responded to that within this loop, and and it became kind of a you know I want to be doing things all the time, I, and I you know I like there to be kind of a consistency. Th- then there's the thing that I have to struggle with that I'm kind of I, I I run off at the mouth, I can like seemingly easily get stuck with my brain directly connected to my mouth and i just talk and talk and talk and talk and i miss all of the cues where other people would like might like to say something so but <laughs> i've been working that my whole life but it's still not fixed the, the persistent thing in terms of the routine i mean i think i, I sort of had routines I, i've noticed this though more recently like you know i've sort of taken up jogging and sort of cycling in, in the morning and i do and that's when i listen to podcasts i listen to you know greater than code and other great uh podcasts like tech Rights and uh, soft skills engineering and and i'm now into that into that routine so i guess the question, original question is how did it come about that i there's a sort of almost a natural personal enjoyment of that consistency by doing the the same thing again and again i get i think some level of emotional safety from that and i'm also i kind of enjoy tinkering so if i can add like an extra thing in that allows me to oh yes and now i can listen to that extra podcast while i'm doing that thing over there it's almost like a kind of a life hacking sort of thing in similar to the programming. I like I the idea makes- of combining things in that way. I'm going to exercise and also I'm going to read a book. <laughs> yeah, that sort of optimal, like you, you take the system of what your life is and like the, your, your routines and you analyze that and you optimize that and you can use that to make continuous improvements. I like that idea. I mean, I, I do enjoy, I'm often seeking the efficiency. I mean, I found particularly like that. I mean, I, you know, particularly when the, I mean, I have, I have three, three sons. We're, we're twins unexpectedly for the, you know, our seconds. And it just felt like I had to like massively optimize, you know, how time was spent. I'm also though, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm quite into, I've been reading a lot of books by sort of you know, the Buddhist philosophy things. There's a Vietnamese monk whose name I won't even try to pronounce. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh. That's the, what's the one? That's the one. Well done. I got to get that pronunciation down. It's this whole mindfulness thing. I think that the, the danger is that, you know, I'm, I'm out there doing, doing five things at once. You then lose contact with your body. You know, I, I'm kind of sort of where, like maybe I, I should be just doing the running and not listening to the podcast. Or maybe I should be just doing the eating and not creating Japanese kanji tests for my children at the same time. The, you know, and so like now I guess now I'm like, yes, I've got a, a multitask as well as everything else. The mindfulness as well. So I've got to be aware of the moment. And, um, well, you know, <laughs> so it comes to what like I say is, is my, my mother 
you know, within simulate, I just, I just like there to be, I, I love there being stuff going on all the time. I have tried to work meditation into the routine. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> I know that feeling, yeah, I, though. I'm very bad at relaxation. I'm like, I'm going to relax tonight. I'm not going to do any work tonight. And then it's like, I sit there for like 15, 20 minutes and I'm like, I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> that actually ties in, the, the mindfulness thing you're talking about ties in really well. I, I just started reading a book this week called Say What You Mean, which is a book that combines Buddhist mindfulness with nonviolent communication as a way of like use like combining the two in order to be a mindful of your communication and then also to make that communication very, very accepting of their people and, and nonviolent and all those other things. And so I've been really enjoying that and using the exercises there to oh, wow. try and up, up increase the mindfulness I have just day to day. So I, I'll post a link for that in the show notes. Oh, please. Oh, that sounds great. I'm kind of thinking of two different things there. Like, like one on that, you were saying, Jamie, about that difficulty of relaxing in the evenings that I really enjoy what I, what I do during the day. I love the coding. I love talking to people about code. I love talking to, to people and trying to work out how we can maybe use bits of IT or not bits of IT to like fix, you know, uh, and make their workflows improve. And, you know, I, I try and make time to make sure that I have, you know, a family supper every day with the whole family. And we, we do that. And when the family supper is over, I kind of have this, this, this weird, okay, I should be now relaxing, but I want more something. And, and I, there's a sort of a discomfort there that I think when I get over that, I probably cracked life. Maybe I, I don't know. That's an <laughs> odd, odd, ongoing thing. The thing you were saying there, John, about the, 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 the communication. Yes. The, the nonviolent communication. Absolutely. The thing that I feel like I've made the most progress on that front to, to, to loop back to some of the things we were saying about uh, communicating with people is, and that sense of safety is like back in my earlier, academic days i think i i just totally didn't have that concept of safety at all or the idea that others would feel safe or unsafe or, or even for myself there was just this kind of idea of the truth or this you know mental model of the universe and so back in the day in any discussion i, I had almost no consideration of whether of, of what people might feel about what i would say or where they were or even where i was I was like completely enamored this idea of here we are collaboratively trying to understand what is true. I think probably in very subliminal subconscious levels, there was like all sorts of ego wrapped up in that about intelligence and this, that and the other. But it, but it meant that I would just engage in these kind of endless debates with, with people to try and like, no, we've got to hash it out here and now. And, um, when I look back at it, I just think, Oh my God, <laughs> you know, it, it's, 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 um, and particularly, and, and then see, if you're in academia, you know, there's some people who really, they, they're also quite relish those debates. It's kind of okay. Moving out of academia and then try like working, I mean, uh, in the industry and then education space and the more recently the charity space, it's like talk about culture shock moving from one country to another, just moving from those different things there. I, I look back at how I was and I'm kind of like, Oh my goodness. Yeah, that, that, the whole non-violent communication thing came out of. We had a guy involved in coming doing some workshops for that at the the boot camp that I they used to run, and uh, yeah, it's really eye-opening. The latest thing I'm finding actually is beyond the sort of non-violent communication is even just letting the other people work it out first, if that means anything. Yeah, well, rather than just hear solution, 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 which may stick but may not, or they may not be receptive. Rather, and that, but if you can lead someone to making their own conclusion 
they'll be much more. Is that where you're going? With that? Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. No, thank you for making <laughs> making it sound sensible. The funny thing about you know the way that I was, which was just like saying anything to anybody and not even re- really realizing about that, is that the flip side is on the occasion that I would think that somebody's would respond badly, I would get very nervous about saying it. Like most of the time, I was just completely oblivious. But then. Actually, another weird part of my personality, which seems like you wouldn't have there because, you know, obviously he's oblivious. He won't care what anybody thinks. When I would actually be aware that someone, that something might be a contentious thing to say to somebody, then I'd have a real problem saying it. So I, I tend to like sort of kind of do damage through just putting my foot in it by saying the wrong thing and not realizing that I was, I was doing it. And then I similarly do damage by failing to say the things that perhaps I should do that I'm nervous about. And so I still have that nerves. But yes, it's now, I mean, nonviolent communication which is great, which has got that sort of four parts of like saying how you feel and the different, and I've almost forgotten the, the stages of it. Almost beyond that is, yeah, can you kind of create the situation where the other person feels safe talking to you about the issue and they almost manage to resolve the issue without you even having to bring it up? Is that, I, I had one of those today and I was just like, what? Because I would be really nervous about it. And I was like, got the other person and they just kind of like, kind of, I was like, oh, I'm going to say all these things and be really difficult. And then they just like, they said all the stuff. You know, because I kind of, and then, then they've they been saying like, you go first, you go first. I was like, no, 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 you go first, you go first. And then they resolved it all by themselves. And I was like, Ooh. yeah, that's, um, so one of the, this is actually really interesting to hear you talk about your evolution from being someone who would just sort of plow forward with a conversation, following your own sort of goals for what needed to happen there and slowly iterating to the point where you're now much more collaborative and you sort of are modeling what's going to happen with the other person, what they're feeling, what they need, how they feel about what you're saying. Um, so how did you make that step? Because I think there are a lot of people that might be on that journey and would like to know how to get farther down that road. I guess I'll add it. It's sort of, it's sort of a, a aspiring to be. Uh, it's to the, the journey is, is ongoing. I think the critical step was actually the environment that we had in, and this was in the Makers Academy bootcamp in London. And we were trying out sort of experimentally things. There was, there was the, um, I'm going to get missed. It's a while ago now, so I'm going to get the names all wrong, but there was this sort of holistic approach to workplace organization that uh, is about bringing your whole self to work. And gosh, there, I'm, it's holo- holocracy, which I think, you know, is sort of a bit of a, you know, some people love, hate, what have you, but we were, we were definitely trying it out at the time. And the key thing for me was the kind of open conversations that that enabled that what came out of my experience there was, I think that there were people for whom it was really hard for them to approach me. And I was sort of in a position of authority, which I think made it doubly hard. I mean, it was part of my personality, part of the position of authority there were things that they were uncomfortable with how I was doing things, but they found it extraordinarily difficult to say. And it only sort of came out through this quite complex process. There were situations where I'd been perceiving things in a certain, certain way, the setup and, and others, you know, ultimately through these, these conversations and sort of, I think empowering people who were in the hierarchy in positions of less authority to kind of say how they felt was really eye-opening and partly also i hadn't been in quite such a position of authority before so i wasn't you know i wasn't used to perhaps people being that intimidated not necessarily by me but by the position so i mean for the people who are sort of like maybe hoping towards move towards that i mean the way it happened to me i don't know that 
it would be difficult to artificially construct a situation where you were in authority and then like, have people sort of you know <laughs> address that. So there's there's unfortunately no easy step there. But I mean, I, you know, to be honest, I think also with that as a trigger for me, it's then podcasts like Greater Than Code, Soft Skills Engineering that have really you know widened it in the, like if that was the crack you know that allowed me to better see other perspectives i think it's it's through particularly better the code and the variety of people that you have on the show talking about the different backgrounds and experiences where they come from you know there, there's no way that that door can shut again for me now if that makes sense so it sounds like a, a big part of what helped you get there was the fact that you were in an environment where that sort of learning could take place, that it wasn't just you deciding I'm going to work on this. It was like the whole, the whole context around you was, you know, moving sort of everyone in the direction of starting to understand other people at these levels and, and, and being safe enough to have difficult conversations, which also increase, you know, uh, understanding and relation, tighten relationships because everyone's really getting good stuff worked through. Definitely. Again, for people who are maybe hoping to, I mean, I, I sort of feel almost anybody who's listening to this podcast is probably already, you know, uh, on that road. Shall we say? Well, I guess there's always people who are like, like tuning in for the first time, and it's like, oh, well, that sounds good. I want more of that. Yeah, it, it can be very difficult to engineer those sort of safe environments. In you know, at the time, Makers Academy was, was fairly fairly small, and, and the I think it was it was the, the, the C, you know, it was a it was a CEO kind of backed initiative for that movement so it's 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 um yeah it's not something you can throw a switch in whatever workplace or environment that you're in and just sort of sort of get that but it's um the, the challenge for you know there might be sort of folks in in varying degrees of positions of authority who are saying like well i want to make have have more of that in my part of the organization say but it, it's certainly not a guarantee of success in perhaps traditional terms for the organization, like part of the process of bringing all that stuff up can lead to all sorts of uh, strange changes. I'm, I'm uh, uh, very glad that we embarked on that process. I, I guess I want to a caveat there. I say it's like, um, you will learn a lot about yourself. You won't necessarily get the results that you think you want. <laughs> well, I think part of that might also be just like helping you and the, the organization as a whole learn what results are required. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting if we talk about organizations, so many organizations, you know, do do they want to change? Do they really want to achieve their stated objectives? I'm not sure. We've had the privilege recently in our our charity to do a lot of work with the NHS, which is the UK's National Health Service, which is like the largest employer in the UK, if not actually in, in Europe. And it is an extraordinary organization in its life, and it does fantastic work. But Oh, goodness me. My, my brain is just sort of boiling as I, you know, kind of get to grips with different parts of it. Um, I also do, we do like sort of volunteering work with, um, very small organizations and gosh, I don't know, the, 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 the tension between, you know, really affecting change and maintaining the status quo. I, I don't know. It's, 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 it's so hard. I, I, I'm really excited about the idea anytime that we can make outcomes better for people. And if you're, you're, I mentioned this, the, the, the thing that uh, across the NHS, they're trying to bring in this idea of this thing called social prescribing, which I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a word particular to the UK at the moment. And I think everybody's agreeing it's not necessarily a very good word, but it's sort of almost a, a, a phrase that's conjured for the medical profession 
to say, well, you know, medical freedom does prescribing, you know, we say like take these drugs or, or you know, have this kind of surgical intervention. There's the idea that the doctors could prescribe, you know, connections with the community that somebody has, you know, we, we've, we've sort of addressed some of these medical issues, but there are all these other things. Actually, this person needs to get out more and exercise more. Or they need to make, you know, they need to contact with the community in order for their, you know, healing continue or just to have a good life. And so this is kind of now part of the big NHS plan. And it's, yeah, gosh, you know, there's, there's some people who really believe that this is a, you know, the right way to do things is that there's some people who are very resistant to it. I think it's, you know, it sounds, it, it makes sense, right? We don't want to be prescribing a drug for every single person. You know, if there are like local community resources that people can connect to and have positive, you know, happiness and health outcomes for people, that's what we should be doing. But the, you know, there's so many different opinions about the approach, how to make it work. Gosh, it just, yeah. Yeah, and and then the the thing then is that the large organizations like the NHS and I, I think this is probably I imagine the same in, in in the US and other places that they keep on having these internal reorganizations to say let's we've got to do it like this and then you know, new job titles and then new departments and, and and so on and so forth and I think everybody is you know they're hoping to get you know at least at some level people want the health and happiness outcomes to come through but can you really make those changes? Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, change in large organizations is is so difficult. They have they have such inertia, um, and and thinking about how to like, and I I don't know how big the NHS is, but as you said, it's the largest employer in possibly Europe, and so that's that's pretty huge. And thinking about how you would affect culture at that scale and how you can get things moved into or even in, moved into a way where that decisions can be made more quickly, and so iterations can happen, and like even that seems daunting. <laughs> Yeah, and then you get into like the more people that you're affecting, the more you get into like how no solution is going to be always the right solution for every single person. And so when you're trying to do something that's right for like a large group of people in like many ways, it feels impossible to be prescriptivist in that way, I guess, at least. Yes. And, and it's, I think we can, I can maybe connect it to one of the ideas that I mentioned in the pre show, which is about this tension between the code slash architectural beauty and delivering working solutions. And it might not be obvious where the connection is there, but, but, but stay with me for a moment is there's, I think that some people are perhaps focused on, shall we say, organizational beauty, whether that's in a kind of a code base or whether that's in an organization. So having the organization structured in such a way or the code base structured in such a way almost becomes an end in of itself. Like, I think people wouldn't necessarily explicitly say that, you know, there, there it's like, oh, yes, this, this organizational structure, this code structure, this will facilitate change in the outcomes that we want in the future. And, and, and sometimes I think they're absolutely right. I mean, you know, anybody who's built up against huge technical debt knows that you get really, really stuck just trying to deliver features to, um, to clients. But there is tension because you could spend all of your time on the kind of organizational code architectural thing as an artistic pursuit in itself, right? It, that, that could be mm-hmm. your goal. That, that could be. And so actually having the particular outcomes or getting particular features out, affecting workflows in people's way, it's like, it, there's almost like a, you can become a specialist in saying, you know, 
this is this organization thing and that becomes what you're focused on versus there are there are people who are like well you know whatever the organization is you know did this person have a good experience with our system and i we, we'd all kind of agree that we probably need a bit of both but but the, the, the insight that i'm just having from what both of you are saying there is i was thinking it purely in a division in terms of the code on the code side but i'm now seeing it as like right the on the organization level the people who are making the restructuring and trying to affect and so on, they may be what's the word, intoxicated by the beauty of the organization. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like this is this is a, a great pure design that you know just from first principles will clearly you know generate these outcomes that I'm in favor of, and so this is what we're doing, and then the real world happens. This is a really nerdy metaphor for it, but I play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, and I write like these really beautiful modules for my players to play and I kind of guess what they're going to do and I try to cover what they're going to do. And the phrase that you'll always hear like DMs from Dungeons and Dragons say is like, no plot survives first contact with players. <laughs> because of course they're going to do something else that I didn't expect. And it's like very, there's a tension of like, but I wrote this and it's so good. And it's not like, aren't you going to do the thing that I did for you? Because it's perfect. But, like, that's not what they want to do. And if it's not what they want to do, it's not perfect. That's a great analogy. Yeah. So we have this kind of, you know, this this, this particular, I think it's sort of the crux of what we do in this, in our Agile Ventures charity, where we try to put together two things. So one is people learning about how to code and deliver systems that, you know, that work. And the other one is trying to help other charities around the world. So... In the sort of traditional education system, you know, you're working in these toy environments. So it, it, it's kind of, it's safe, perhaps too safe in, in some ways. Obviously, you know, I don't want to force anybody out of that situation until they're, until they're ready. Uh, but I also feel that there's certain sorts of learning that only go on once you are trying to make something to help somebody who's not you, who is actually, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they they have some uh, investment in being helped. You know, they have some of their own own goals. So, you know, I w- work with lots of different developers all around the world. Some of them, you know, very experienced. The majority, more people who are, you know, perhaps uh, less experienced, and they're trying to get more experience with working in teams and and working with bigger, slightly more complex systems, working with real customers and, and clients, and. Yeah, there's this constant tension between sort of supporting their learning, but at the same time supporting delivering things to people who need things to work. They're often enamored with a particular technology. You know, sometimes it's a new technology or a DevOps flow or, you know, organizational structure. And they're kind of excited about that and their excitement. But at the same time, I want to say, do want to like something that from the empathetic rather than just doing it for the sake of doing it. But that always feels like a really tricky conversation, even though, as I sort of put in earlier on, I'm kind of arguing that it's that that crucible that makes the more valuable learning experience. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's that contact with the real world where the really hairy problems come up, where where you have to really stretch your understanding of what you're building. Or you have to really stretch your understanding of like what the flow is supposed to be because there's all, all those extra inputs that weren't accounted in your pure little design. <laughs> yes, yes. There, and, and there is, and then there's, there's also about, 
So you're absolutely right in all of that, that complexity and all of its glory. But it's interesting because I think you, you can still work on getting the fix to that higher level of complexity and sort of get something done that seems like it works superficially. I mean, the tests are passing, it's run on your system, but then that goes out to the players, uh, goes out to the, the people like consuming the system whether that's on their phone or it's, you know, the, the browser that they're doing and, you know, they're out in the field and even it's like you printed out documents from and then they're going out there and then they're kind of like they haven't understood something and it sort of messes up or, or what have you. And I, I guess what I, I, guess, I guess I'm really hoping to inculcate in everybody involved in our charity is a sort of excitement and an enthusiasm to see that point, to see the point at which the user actually you know, in, encounters and it and it you know supports the work for it doesn't. There was such a it was a wonderful um, uh, massive open online class. I think Scott Clemmer from I think it was originally at University of California San Diego on user experience. That was really influential for me. Oh, there's also the psychology of everyday things, which I always think is by Doug, Douglas Hofstadter, and it's not. It's by Doug Norman. That's I, I almost corrected my internal block there. He has this wonderful thing. He, he talks about why is the design of like oven hobs you know, where you've got your four kind of rings, you know, gas burners or electric, and then you have like a, a straight line of the four knobs to turn. This, I don't know, without a visual image, it's very difficult. Um, we, I, we have exactly that set up in our, what was a new kitchen five years ago here. Doug Norman, I think, makes, it makes the point that if you just mapped the spatial layout of the four hobs to the four knobs that you would turn to turn them on or off, it's much, much easier to remember which is which, but we kind of, uh, these, still these days, everyone gets, like, they have them in a, in a straight line and they have a little diagram next to them, right? With the, like, four circles doing this mapping to make, and it's, it's kind of, I don't know, the, I, I think those kind of examples and, and that kind of, like, really nitty gritty of seeing people use things and how they affect their lives and whether it's, it's, it's smooth and easy. That gives me the bigger rush than the code organization or the organization, like the, the architecture. I mean, I, I absolutely love an architecture, an organization and a DevOps tool that will allow us to better support, you know, people, you know, having good experiences with software. But that, that's, that's for me has got to be the, the, the highest goal. And I'm kind of like, I kind of want everybody else to see, see that. But it's, it's, is it like going into programming and they're interested in being a programmer more than they are in delivering something that, changes how other people you know improves i don't know is that desperately unfair to people who are you know there's obviously a huge number of people starting programming am i being evil there (laughs) (laughs) well i mean i think there's there certainly are people who are interested in just just the programming of it regardless of where it lands and who uses it and just they want it to be done and written and and beautiful and whatever and i think that's not necessarily a problem as long as that person is on a team with a bunch of other people. I was, was going to say that too. I think that this is two different kinds of people that you want both of them on your team because I think right. if you don't have anyone that is like has opinions about code conventions and, and things like that, you're going to end up with like a code base that maybe your application is amazing and it's really great for people and it really works for people and that's great, but then you have like a code base that's like a nightmare to maintain. Mm-hmm. And I think that like having people on both sides. This has come up on the show before because I was like, nobody takes joy in updating libraries. And like three people on the show were like, I do. And I'm like, great, be on my team. 
<laughs> but I think having having people that like have strengths and weaknesses that kind of can click together is a great thing to have on teams. Definitely, definitely. I think an excellent point there, and, and I guess I mean there's yeah because if you can have the right kind of problem definition in select the ticket that you're pulling off the board that you know and, and that sort of th- whatever process and the rest of the team that like okay we need this bug fixed or we need this little chunk this little lego block if that can be specified correctly then somebody who's just interested in like okay this is the inputs and outputs that it needs to have and i like i'm going to do it the most efficiently to get get through they can absolutely do that and and then you've got you know, other people who are like user experience experts and, 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 and so on. And clearly as the team gets bigger, that makes perfect sense. Speaking of the libraries updating, I, I, I've become really excited about updating libraries, not myself, but we have a thing called the, the depend, Dependabot that I don't know if you heard of, which, which like automatically updates the libraries, um, for our like Ruby gems on, on various projects. And, and, um, I was always kind of like, no, we must lock things down and like, oh, no, don't change them unless we're forced. And, and now this is like this kind of, uh, automation tool that proactively you know, puts in all these pull requests to like say do this and this and this and then it runs all the tests. And so uh yeah, that's been quite a revelation for me. And I and I yeah, totally like busy I'm having this big chat with the London Ruby users groups about about uh how we can you know change our our, our DevOps organization. Oh, there's sorry, just sort of a random different thing like that is I think it's come up on the show before is talking about automation and you know how valuable it is to do automation and there's this weird kind of caveat that I think that goes in there. Um, this is another conversation that I have with, with a lot of different developers and programmers of backgrounds is, you know, like how many times do you need to be doing a task before you spend the time to automate it? Right. And then you can get like little diagrams online and so on, which are this. What I find is it's so easy to overestimate the number of times you will do something and underestimate how long it will take you to automate it. <laughs> um, totally. It's, it's like, I've, I've been burned by that so many times. It's, 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 it's not funny. The thing particularly though, I'm, I'm noticing at the moment as I, I, so our, you know, we've become an official UK charity and like the admins going up and, and so on is what I am finding really useful is where we've automated reminders for doing things almost like where, you know, we've connected up some process. So it gets pinged into Slack with like, it's, it's not fully automated, but it's kind of like, Oh, these people have been active. You need to speak to these people this week kind of thing that, you know, if you just had to go and press a button to make it happen, you wouldn't get to it. But if you've got a bot that's, you know, on a box with a cron job or whatever, sending it into the Slack here, go and talk to these people that, suddenly makes a huge difference and the dependable thing is like i'm right oh could we like do this whole new level of automation to like to force out more production deploys and anyway sorry if anybody's interested in this quick discussion thread on the london reviews group about that but uh there's a thought that like keeps coming back to me and it's about when we're just used to things like the value and doing stuff the way that we're used to versus like a way that might be better and i first started thinking about this when you were talking about the oven Mm. And I was thinking about like UX, like, okay, so the back button is in like the top left. And that's because like, we're used to the back button being in the top left. So that's where you should put it because that's where people look for it. But then I was also thinking about it when you were talking about automation, like now we're just used to doing this task as like part of our routine. And we're not thinking about like, how we could automate it and make it better. And like, I think in some of those situations, it's like, it'd be great to make it better. I'm only doing this because I'm used to it. And I'm not thinking about it. But in other situations, it's like, there's real value. And like, everyone is used to this convention. And that's how we're going to do it. And so I'm wondering if you have any opinions on like that, and like, where to draw that line, maybe. 
Yeah, and that's that's a it's a really tricky emotional one. I think it actually harps back to my kind of the <laughs> discussion at the beginning in a good way. So many times, the things that I've inserted into my routine that I then keep on doing, and I'm kind of intellectually aware that there might be a more efficient way to do them, but I don't have the emotional energy to change it. It's almost like, and I have to kind of play this daily game with myself about which things I can take on in terms of this chunk of time is available. There's, there's this thing like it might be more efficient to do this report this way, but I've done it like 15 times this way. And like today, where I am emotionally, it's as, it's as much as I can do to just regenerate the reports for the, 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 in the, in the same format again than it is to like come up with a new, a new, new approach. And the answer to like, you know, where, where to draw the line is unfortunately connected to, to, to prescience in that you can't know where to exactly draw the line unless you could see the future perfectly accurately with these things of like, how many times will I actually be repeating this task? And also what value will I derive from it going forward? So it, it's always got to be this like, this kind of guessing game and. I mean, the, the, the danger that I find in the context of working with lots of other people is, and particularly in, in a, if you're one of the more senior people in a sort of position of authority, there's a, there's a tendency for those of us who've been repeatedly burned by computers not doing what we expected, even when we really thought they were going to do that, is to be quite conservative to say, yeah, let's not make that change because of this and that. And I think particularly for the more senior people, I think we've got to balance that very strongly against Folks who are coming in with enthusiasm and they want to try and they, and they, and they want to, and sometimes like we're wrong, you know. So if we're co- constantly saying like, don't do that, it's dangerous as well, then we can actually miss out on learning opportunities for ourselves. We, we just, we're not so much fun to work with. I've been hearing it so long in kind of like the pair programming, cause I'm a huge pair programming fan of rather than arguing about why things should be done your way, you know, let the other person do their way and then if they discover that it doesn't work, then you can have a different sort of conversation. Or maybe you find out that you were wrong. And I kind of knew that intellectually for so long, but I think it's only recently I've been able to internalize that and actually start start doing that. So this can I can I can I land this plane back down to about where you draw the line there? I, I guess I'm I'm struggling now with the the, the, the the two sides of what you were saying there is one is like on whether you should automate things or not. And then the other one, okay, that's right. You, you were connecting it to the user experience conventions, which is really, that's a really lovely connection because there's then like, like I was, uh, when you were mentioning like the, 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 the bat button being in that left position, I was thinking you were going to say like, oh, but actually in different cultures, you know, that le- it might have been somewhere else, like people who write languages in different directions. And yeah, you've, you've got to be weighing up that cost of, you know, should we go with the convention that people are used to that? It's a judgment call every time, and I think I can maybe land this with an example from today when I was I, I doing volunteering uh, out at a very small but wonderful Harrow Women's Centre in the area that, that I live, and you know doing all sorts of, sort of support for particularly the the, the, the the female gender, but I think that connects and it empowers the whole community. That they had a, like a difficult IT problems that I've been helping them sort of fix in these little volunteer hours that I steal for them, and then there was this latest issue, and we got set up with now they've got their like. You know, the, the Microsoft, who I guess are they the good guys now? They're doing open source. I don't know. I'm confused. Like, I'm very conflicted there about, you know, it's like, well, Microsoft, can I even say their name? No, I don't want to give them advertising. Well, they're, they're doing great. VS, I love using VS Code and they bought GitHub. <laughs> uh, I'm confused. But so the, the organization, they, they have, they're all set up with, um, 
the Office 365 and everything, and I finally got all their emails in right shared drive. And I said, okay, well, you could be using the OneDrive, and it could be all in the cloud. And they were like, oh, no, we have this existing shared drive. And I was kind of there with the decision point of maybe this would be more convenient for them to be using the OneDrive, and that's what they've now got full access to. But I, I stopped myself there, and it's like, okay, they've been using just the pure shared drive stuff. Let me help them get that working. And it wasn't just uh, the immediate problem was it wasn't working on one computer. Let me help them get that thing that they know working first rather than trying to impose some sort of bigger unknown solution that's maybe they will the workflow will be great for them, but maybe it won't. I feel like particularly if you're trying to help end users, you've got to bring it down on the side of sticking with what they know to begin with. I think perhaps uh, what I'm getting from you is like this process of thinking about like, is the problem I'm trying to solve like really a problem or not? Yes. Yes, ab- 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 absolutely. You know, I mean, the, the funny thing from the Buddhist philosophy is that, like, we're already complete. You know, we're already everything that we need to be. And, you know, the world doesn't need to change, but it can change. I mean, it's a, it's a funny thing in, in, in particularly, the, the, obviously, the, the, the show is often very focused on the huge inequalities, the, the different different challenges that people have. And you could say, like, well, we've got to change the world because it's got all these difficult things. And I think, yes, yes, sensibly, sensibly, we should. And I thought, oh, just like... The, the, the Buddhist approach where it's sort of like, can you realize that everything is kind of perfect in some strange way? I, I don't know. I, I guess it's like the, 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 the danger of getting up too wrapped up in any outcome, needing it to change. Can, can we can we affect change by allowing things to be there? I think it's getting dangerously Jedi there. <laughs> going, going awful, but uh, I have to maybe re say that and like reconnect my my thread. I get a wonderful buzz out of like helping some of the volunteering that I do. And when I get outcomes and people are like, Oh, we can now do this. And we were stuck on that. And that's a, that, that's a, that's a lovely feeling. And and I think it's difficult to get that unless you're kind of in your, to bring it back around to this sort of like connecting with what other people want and do they feel safe and are they feel safe to tell you if things are working for them? Yeah. It, I, I think it's got to all come back down to that. This conversation is great because it has one of, I feel, the hallmarks of a great conversation, which is that, like, all of the things start to connect in an intertwining way. <laughs> the, the thing that I, I then sparks in my mind of that is, you know, you can get sort of sort of a sort of a conservatism with a small C out of that is of like, you know, giving people what they need and fixing, fixing them. I, I do some other work and, I, you know, work with some other more senior developers who are, who are like, you know, you need to be not afraid sometimes to tear it all down and do a different thing. And so, uh, yeah, I hate to end it on a kind of, right, yes, or, or always be slave to what the way things have been done and what everybody's used to. Sometimes there is there is room for a revolution, you know, and there's room for a big breaking change. But I think it's it's usually not every day that you want your users experiencing that huge breaking change and that huge yeah, I mean, that actually ties in with what we were discussing about at, at the beginning about, uh, you know, in conversation and understanding what people need that day versus the next day versus different people and their needs and how it's that feedback loop of just trying to understand the person that you're talking to and what they need at that time. It's the same question of, all right, will this population of users like we've changed enough already and let's let's let them adjust to what this is going on or, you know, this is so problematic that we really do need to start from scratch and, and change everything yeah i really like that point and i think the well to connect then to the thing that we were talking about with the different teams and i think it's like 
you know, the, the team will have different, you know, some who, some, specialists in different areas and some who are more interested in the, you know, the code beauty and others who are more interested in the user experience and other people are interested in, in, in uh, DevOps and the different, different parts and, and pieces. I'll, I'll tell you my, my experience with computer systems sort of outside the open source world, in, in the open source world, but, but outside, you know, like, like going online with the banks and, and, you know, which I, as, you know, we, we sort of, in the developed world, we, we all experience, uh, and I assume that these systems are being made by people with large teams that have these varieties of experience, but I just do find myself saying, why, I maybe mean, it's because I'm reflecting about age, why are you changing this again? I knew how this worked. I was, you know, recently the, the BBC iPlayer, which is the thing that, you know, pr- provides all of our, um, you know, <laughs> like non-advertising supported uh, entertainment and news and so on in the UK. You know, I thought it was working fine, and they did this uh, overhaul for it, and it was like, no, I can't, no, no, and it just—I'm not sure they had design sprints and user groups and all these different specialists, but it—it it feels to me like the pendulum is too far on the let's change things and keep making them new, and less on the like actually. I think they could be a bit more spending time with users, helping making sure that it really works for them. Yeah, I mean, I think there's also um, there. I think there's a tendency to. If you're going to make a changes to a system, you want to sort of do a big bang release where you review the whole thing changes all at once. Ever the new design is perfect and we release it and everyone loves it. Whereas if you just made an incremental change, you know, what couple of weeks, couple of weeks, couple of weeks iterating towards that new design in the same amount of time it would take you to develop the new big bang design. Like people would have already integrated all those in- incremental changes. So by the time you get to that endpoint, it's not a big jarring change. It's a really interesting idea. And I, almost, I thought that you were going to say something different. I, I thought when you started that, you were going to say that sometimes that big release sends the message that everything is different. And so maybe sometimes that is the right thing to do. I mean, I, I kind of, I'm more for where you actually ended up, which is that I, I feel like I would rather have those small incremental changes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of that. A bit of the tension that we have in our chat at the moment is, is, is with those long-term projects versus the, like, incremental changes. There's actually all the Cancer Research UK have started doing their own podcast, and they've got this concept, which I mentioned, I think, from somewhere else, called, uh, is Leaky Boats and Rocket Ships. I don't know if you've heard of this, which is this idea that, that there's, I mean, the rocket ships is sort of like, that's the big project. It's like, oh yes, we're going to like have AI chatbots, you know, coming in and sorting this out. And it's like the, the, the big, the, the moonshots, right? It's like, so the rocket ship. So there's like, in these organizations, they have plans to do these big changes. And then there's the leaky boats, which is like people just trying to get stuff done. And they're like, you know, their workflow is like, oh, you know, I have to do this step 18 times. If you could just automate this one step or just take this one difficult thing, if you could fix that one leak, that would make my current working thing. And, and there's a lot of people who are like, I'm not really interested in your, you know, rocket ship, your moonshot, because I just need to get this work done each day. So there's, there's this, um, I think this philosophy of trying to make sure that the, uh, you know, the IT support and the approach and the developments addresses both of those concerns. It's to both fix the leaky boats and also to make the rocket ships, which, which I guess is a danger. If you're only ever focusing on the leaky boats, then you get uh, surpassed by someone else's rocket ship kind of thing and you become you know less relevant so yeah and i think that you know we're in this we're trying to do like 
Paddle Ventures is open source charity space, and and that's uh, it's the other tent is like you know fixing those little leaky boats, doing those rocket ships. I mean, I guess as with all good conversations, come down to it. it's a balance. You need a bit of both. You need a bit of the you need a bit of the people who are excited by the code and the architectural beauty. You need a bit of the people who are like you're really excited about the new experience. You need a bit of the people who are like I want to fix the leaky boats and the rocket. Ship. And I guess there's almost a parallel there that the code architectural beauty sort of corresponds to the rocket rocket ship and the UX stuff sort of crosses the leaky boats, but not always. Not always. As usual, it depends. <laughs> Indeed. So you, you've really taken me on a journey today. I uh, really didn't expect the conversation to go, and it did. But it was—it's been absolutely wonderful fun. I guess it's going to be reflection soon. I'm excited. I love—I love the reflections part of the show. I think it's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful feature. I guess I—I can't—I I can't, I can't go without without saying, you know, Agile Ventures. Is there anybody who wants to do more open source? Wants to do it in kind of like a team format with real non-profit clients and so on come and get involved you know we'd love to have more more people um i think it is a fantastic crucible for, for learning come and come and join us excellent all right so i think i have two ideas and, and these are both things that i've been stirring around in my head that were sort of brought up by the conversation today um one is we were talking about like trying to sit on the couch and not do the thing that like you normally do, which is work until like late in the evening, uh, which is totally a thing I do as well. And one of the ideas I've been thinking about in relation to that is the fact that most people think that relaxation is, is not doing things where you just stop all the other things you were doing and then try and not do something when you go on vacation or you even just sit around the house or whatever. But that is hard to do. First of all, because if you're one of those people that is doing things all the time, you just want to keep doing things and it's really hard to break that out of that habit. Um, but also I think just not doing things or not doing anything particular isn't particularly relaxing necessarily because it's not actually actively pushing you into a space where you're relaxing, where you're reducing tension, where you're simplifying your life, where you're working through your feelings, where you're doing whatever you need to do to do that. And that thinking about relaxation as an active activity that you do specifically that you possibly even schedule like meditation, for example, or even exercise or any other little things like that, like, or if it's a hobby that brings you joy or something like that. Like if you think of relaxation that way, something that you do rather than things that you don't do, I think can be actually more uh, helpful. And it's something I'm probably going to end up talking about a lot in the future. And then um, the other thing was about the uh, learning how communication like works, basically like how to communicate better with other people, how to understand what your own like impulses are and your own learning how to relate to other people more authentically and how to understand them better and how to sort of model what their feelings are and understand why what you're saying isn't landing or whatever. It's something you can't just do in your own head. You have to do it in practice and having a supportive community around you to do that, I think is really important because you can reinforce those communication habits. There's two, two people involved in any communication at minimum. And if one person is trying to change that communication, there's going to be some resistance from the other side because they don't know that things are supposed to be changing. And if you can have all the people involved as sort of actively feeding back and, and doing that, it's going to be a lot more effective and it's going to be deeper change. I totally agree with that. I've been making a point to like be more assertive with like how I feel about a conversation. And like, if people are talking about like a topic that is like very stressful to me or like telling a story that is like making me feel uncomfortable, I've been, trying to be more active about like, Hey, I really don't want to talk about this. Like not because I don't like you. Like it just feels so rude to be like, I don't like this conversation. Can we have a different one? But like, if I don't do that, then I'm just going to be stuck in a conversation that I don't like. And 
I love myself, so I'm trying not to do that. Um, which I was also thinking about when we were talking about that. But my reflection is also about the communication from going back to when we were talking about communication at the beginning. Sam told the story about being deep in computers and then having trouble with people and saying like, oh, I feel like I'm not good at that. And I also sometimes feel like, oh, I'm not very good at that. And what we discussed about like how complex it is to talk to people and read their cues and try to like speak to them in a way that lands with them and like how much background processing is happening with that, like makes me feel kind of better about it. Like it's easy for me to be like, Oh, I'm not that good at that. But like, actually the fact that like any of us can do it at all is a miracle. (laughs) It feels like, so that was kind of like, it felt validating to me. And I was thinking about that, but I also really liked what John said about like, I, I do beat myself up over it. And the idea of like, well, you're doing a good job already by being able to do this at all. And if you don't beat yourself over it, up over it, then you're getting better at it all the time. And I really like that. I'm going to think about that the next time I just feel like, oh, that conversation just went really terribly. So I'm challenging myself to do that. Oh, that sounds really good. Wow. Well, I think my, my immediate reflection is that I've, I've still got a long way to go in terms of communicating effectively. And that um, it's, it's so great to have the two of you here to sort of like pull out like sensible bits from from whatever uh, i i ended up saying the exciting insight that i got was from this now this there's this new analogy forming in my head between the sort of tension of like working software and you know that's beautiful and that you know helps effect some change to the broader like organ like the beauty of the organization and the organizational structure and uh, whether that's actually delivering services uh, experiences to to end users on on a, on a bigger scale and that's kind of oh wow a different different way to look at things but i really liked your questions there genuinely you're sort of probing on the like that balance between do you stick with the uh, approach that's been used and people are comfortable with or is it now time to move out of your comfort zone and like make that change to do things more efficiently and i just what then reinforces i thought about your question there is about it really comes down to the emotional energy and it's i think it's okay sometimes not to have the emotional energy to make that change and that's that's okay and you shouldn't feel you know and maybe other people do have the emotional energy to make the change and you can say it's not that that's a bad idea you can say i just i i can't handle that but but also then and, and this is yeah yeah it, enable and empower others to say I, I i can't join you on that journey today because i don't have that emotional energy today but but start down and i'll join you tomorrow when i'm feeling a bit better you know um, i really love yeah, that think, yeah that's great cool thank you so much for coming on the show it's really it was really great to have you great to be here thanks so much yeah, it's a fantastic conversation, as always. And if anyone who likes the show also wants to have conversations with us in a maybe a safe space, if you pledge to our Patreon at patreon.com slash greater than code, you can get an invite to our Slack community, and it's really great there. I really recommend it. Yeah, one of my favorite Slacks. 